0: everyone if you have a bible open up to hebrews chapter 13 hebrews chapter 13 uh if you don't have a bible feel free to grab one of those in the pew in front of you and um I wish I had the page number for you but I think it's written on your service guide right so uh and if you see someone scrambling help them find that page so so hebrews chapter 13 so today is the last week or we've done a two week a short series on what I've been calling elders in congregational life. It really is the, the pickup of a series we did earlier this year uh, called Who Do Christians Think They Are? And it's, it was a five-week series about the church. And so I thought we'd add on a couple weeks to that talking about the leadership of the church. So this is kind of wrapping up a, a brief series, but it's really part of a longer series we did earlier in the year. Last week, we talked about Uh, The leadership structure that God has for the church. Elders, uh, what are elders, what do elders do? And then we we concluded our time by looking at an example from Paul the Apostle. So today we're talking about how those two work together in concert, so to speak. Elders and a congregation. How does that look like in practicality in our lives day to day? Now many of you know my story, I didn't grow up in a Christian household, I didn't have Christian family, I didn't have Christian friends, it just wasn't part of my upbringing at all. So the whole concept of Christianity and the church was just really bizarre uh, for me in a lot of ways. Um, My mom got radically saved and all of a sudden, and and she was an immigrant, so she had no understanding of kind of Christianity as well, so she did what she thought she could do. So she sent me to Catholic school, Uh, so I went to Catholic school in the morning for a few years. But because she wanted me to appreciate my heritage and my culture, I still went to the honganji in the afternoon. So in the mornings, I had the, the nuns and the priests, and in the afternoons, I had the monks trying to educate me, and, and it was all about learning Japanese and martial arts and a culture and, and, and Buddhism. And then on top of all that, several, sometimes on Sundays, we go to a Baptist church. So I was just, like, confused as a young man, and I remember, like, is— Is Jesus the fat guy that I'm lighting incense to every other day? Or is he he the skinny guy from China that eats one grain of rice and wears sandals? I don't know, right? It just wasn't something that I was used to. And as you can imagine, when you think about it, as Christians, uh, it's a weird thing if you're not growing up with it. For example, where in the world, other than like music concerts, bars, birthday parties, and baseball stadiums, do people gather and sing robustly? doesn't happen in our society but we do it every week and you don't think anything about it or other than students who sits down and listens to someone preach at you for 30 to 40 minutes every week it's just an odd thing but that's part of our culture so coming into all that it was strange and bizarre yet at the same time for me it was just fantastic becoming a Christian later in my life when I understood the gospel and got kind of passed through all the confusion. I knew who the fat guy and the skinny guy were in the story. I had figured that out. I loved the Lord's church. It was a fantastic experience. The fellowship that I got, the friendships that I had made, the, the passion and hunger for the truth of God's word was Contagious. It was a fantastic experience. And for many of you, you share those kinds of memories. And for many of you, that's your experience right now. Well, being within the Lord's Church now for 30 years, I have had, both as a Christian and as a pastor, experience my share, I've seen and heard my share, of churches struggling with conflict and strife. And while the details are different, At the root, all of those problems seem to be a failure either of the leadership to provide biblical leadership and or the congregation to follow that leadership. Sometimes, leaders are, uh, able leaders are trying to lead and congregations just refuse to follow. They just don't want any of it. Other times, you have willing congregations that are floundering because leaders are not providing the biblical leadership they need. In either situation, conflict and strife are sure to ensue. And so this is a really important topic, because both leaders of churches and members, congregations of churches, need to be diligent to understand the biblical pattern of church life together, because oftentimes that dynamic between a leadership and its people actually creates the context and culture for that church community to grow and prosper, and the Epistle to the Hebrews offers a wonderful example of this. The Epistle to the Hebrews—it's a rich letter, and it is packed with so much theological truth. As a matter of fact, it's one of my favorite letters of the New Testament in understanding and appreciating God's—what uh, you say—the purpose and structure of the local church. And it's one of the most practical books in the Bible. It's got things to say to us as individual Christians, but also as a corporate body of people. Pastoral concerns are ripe through this book. In his commentary on the book of Hebrews, Philip Hughes, uh, after identifying um, many in today's church who satisfy themselves with what he says is an undemanding and superficial association with the Christian faith, he says that the letter of Hebrews was written to arouse such persons from the lethargic state of compromise and complacency into which they had sunk and to incite them to persevere wholeheartedly in the Christian conflict. And I love this last line. He adds, Hebrews is a tonic For the spiritually debilitated that's pretty good see the book of hebrews balances beautifully the combination of of tenderness and toughness that is so often necessary in our own lives and in church together this letter is just packed with encouragements and warnings so it's not surprising that in this letter, at some point, the writer is going to address the critical relationship between elders, the leaders of the church, and the congregation they're leading. Evidently, the writer to the Hebrews knew them well and, and was going to turn over every stone that's going to hinder them from applying the full doctrine of Christ and the gospel to their lives, and an unwillingness to follow the spiritual leaders posed just such a threat, so he wants to address that. Now, some scholars believe that the particular passage we're looking at this morning, Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 17 and then ending in verse 19, was written to target... the the former leaders of the church at that time who struggled under the persecutions of Rome, uh, specifically Emperor Claudius and Emperor Nero in the late uh, 40s AD. As a result, these leaders became gun-shy or kind of shell-shocked as they got back into the active life of the church. Now, you can understand having suffered persecution for being a Christian, which by the way, I need to remind you, is the normal state of being a Christian even to this day. We forget that in the West, Europe and America. We think we're we're just the the predominant religion. That is not the case. Christianity today is still massively persecuted. You all see this band; I've been wearing it since our study of Revelation. It's a constant reminder of the persecution that Christians undergo. It has the the letter noon there, means Nazarene. This is what gets posted on, on Christian homes, Christian businesses throughout large parts of the Middle East so that Muslims know who to target. So I'm reminded of that every day. So, But you can understand, having suffered that persecution, these, new, these leaders coming back are a little bit standoffish to get back involved. Uh, and, and as a result, their grasp of the doctrine is a little bit frayed, and they have an unwillingness to follow the current leaders of their church. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to write to them and encourage them to correct this theological error that was having massive practical implications. So, by the time we get to chapter 13, we have all these practical applications in the book of Hebrews reminding us, friends, that doctrine, theology, is for life. It's not just for your head knowledge. It's to change you, and that's what good spiritual leaders do. They take the Word of God, and they say, this is how it applies to our lives. And as leaders are to lead the church in applying God's truth to their life, congregations are to follow. So, the question is... How does this dynamic look like? What does it look like in everyday life? And so we can look at this passage. I'll read it in a little bit with these kind of two broad headings. Leaders who lead and congregations who follow. So with that being our introduction, you should be at Hebrews chapter 13 right now. We're going to start in verse 17. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 17. This is the reading of God's Word, you may sit. It's a short text, and we're talking about leaders and congregations. And when we talk about the leaders who lead, when we talk about the leaders who lead, really we're looking at it in two broad senses, that they are keeping watch and they will give account. So let's unpack that first and then talk about the the congregations that follow. So in 17b, you notice I kind of put A, B, and C sometimes in verses to help you kind of parse that sentence out there's a word there that says keeping watch, which which the original language behind that word is a very strong word picture. The word behind in the Greek of keeping watch pictures a shepherd or a sentinel, a centurion or a soldier. A shepherd keeping sacrificial watch over the sheep, being vigilant to watch over their condition, make sure they know what's going on. A soldier standing at their post it's a very strong, evocative word. If I had to come up with kind of a modern-day version of that, you might have a mental image because for us to think about shepherds, we don't see that. Some of you may have a concept of soldiers, so let me give you one that may fit. Imagine a parent tracking their child on their smartphone all the time, right? Where are they at now? Where are they at now? That, that's the idea. You are vigilant to do it, and you're constantly doing it. Or someone who's put a bid on eBay, and you're always like refreshing. Did I win it? Did I win it? Did I win it? Oh, got a vote. That's the idea. You're constantly thinking about it. You're constantly watching over it. The word literally means to be without sleep, to be looking for sleep. So that tells you a little bit of the dynamic of what's going on here. They are not even sleeping because they're always at this. But these men here in Hebrews 13, they're not just guarding animals or buildings or watching over their kids or their online deals. The text says they are watching, keeping watch over your souls. The writer says the leader's primary job is to keep watch of the people who make up the church. So when we read that, then a natural question should come into our mind. If that's what the leaders are doing to keep watch, what is it exactly they should be keeping watch for? Well, the New Testament answers that, and there's about four different categories. Number one, the leaders are to watch for dangerous doctrines and false teachings within the church. You remember this? To to remind you of last week, go back to Acts chapter 20. Keep your finger in Hebrews 13. But Acts chapter 20, this was exactly what Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. What did he say? He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in. I lost my place here. Let's see what happens when I use an iPad. Uh, fierce wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. And even from amongst yourselves, men will rise up speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease to encourage you and admonish you day and night. So this is certainly the emphasis we got from Paul last week. One of the things the elders are to keep watch for is dangerous doctrines and false teachings. Sometimes this comes in very obvious ways, The denial that Jesus is God. The denial that Jesus rose from the grave. These are heresies from the early church that were expelled, but they still exist to this day. As a matter of fact, what we just read in Acts chapter 20, just a little bit of side tip here, this is one of the most powerful verses to talk about Jesus being God himself. Look at verse 28 when Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Look at this line here, to care for the church of who? to care for the church of God, which he obtained with what? His own blood. So one of, to me, this is one of the strongest uh, texts that talk about Jesus himself being God because Jesus said his blood for the church. So sometimes these doctrines are obvious, but a lot of times, other times, they're a lot more sophisticated and insidious. Some of the times in, in our culture itself, it's kind of like this. I've heard this one. You know, if God's love is unconditional, then there's no need for repentance and change. God loves you just as you are. You don't have to change one bit. God accepts you. God forgives you. What you need to work on is you have to accept yourself and forgive yourself. Friends, that's an insidious doctrine, and it plays well in our culture of self-esteem and therapy, but that is not gospel teaching. Uh, i'm tempted to unpack that but i can't this is along the lines of what's called cheap grace when the the forgiveness given to us a new life given to us came at great cost of our savior talk about that later my point simply is as elders we have to watch over dangerous doctrines and false teachings that come into the church friends theology matters knowing the character of god and what his word says matters but too often churches and their leaders and even church members theology is non-existent listen to what professor david wells in his book no place for truth whatever happened to evangelical theology he writes this the disappearance of which i'm speaking is not the same as the abduction of a child who is happily playing at home one minute and then is no longer to be found the next no one has abducted theology in this sense The disappearance is closer to what happens in homes where the children are ignored and, to all intents and purposes, abandoned. They remain in the home, but they they have no place in the family. So it is with theology and the church. It remains on the edges of evangelical life, but it has been dislodged from its center. And friends, add to this the glut of false teaching that's around in our culture, whether it's even on on Christian networks like the Trinity Broadcasting Network, sometimes Christian radio. My family, my daughter in particular, knows don't turn on Christian radio when dad's in the car because I just pull my hair out once the DJ starts talking about stuff because they're always talking about crazy non-biblical gospel. So it gets me up a little upset. (laughs) Add to that. News outlets, pop psychology, online social influencers. Now, to be clear, everyone's a theologian, but they've all thrown theology out the window. When you have all this going on in our world, keeping watch can be a full-time gig, and church leaders have to stand in the gap to say, no, this is not the gospel, right? The obvious easy stuff, the obvious stuff is the easy stuff. It's the insidious, subtle stuff that, that passes for common knowledge that is often the most trickiest. So not only dangerous doctrines and false teachings, but church leaders have to be on the lookout for deceitful behavior even within the church. Now John the Apostle in his third epistle uh, illustrates this for us beautifully. A man named Diotrephes had somehow gained leadership, reigns in the church, and he was now rebelling against the apostolic authorities themselves. And John had exposed his deceitful behavior and calls the church to, to resist this guy. Let's read it from his own words here in Third John 9 and 10. This is John the Apostle writing, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So elders not only have to watch out for ideas that are dangerous, but actions that are dangerous as well, deceitful behavior within the church. Thirdly, elders and church leaders have to watch out for divisive behavior that exists in the church. Now, I wish we could just pray and all the divisiveness in the church would just disappear, but that's not reality. So long as the church is made up of, well, you and I, um, this is a battle we're going to have to continue to fight. Now, while scripture calls on every single one of us, if you're a Christian, that we have to fight against um, gossip, we have to constantly be seeking truth and seeking unity. The job of church leaders we have the responsibility to take a stand firmly against those things those those kinds of divisive actions and words even at the risk of of fraying relationships and having people get really upset with us it has to be done paul says even by rebuking admonishing and sometimes even going to church discipline he says this beautifully or he illustrates this in titus chapter 3 verse 10 As for a person who stirs up division, notice the pattern here, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with them because such a person is warped and sinful. Oops. Such a person is warped and sinful. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't put the rest of the verse there. Such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So the reason Paul is so firm here in talking about people who are divisive, divisiveness, when it takes root in a church, The root of that, the fruit of that is always going to be conflict. When divisiveness, that kind of attitude, takes root in a church, the fruit is always going to be conflict. Secondly, Paul knows that kind of divisiveness is not just going to stay to that one member. What do we do as human beings? We're social beings. We like to gather people around us. If there's a divisive person, it doesn't stay with that person alone that person he or she begin, begins to bring a coalition of other people around and so paul realizes if you don't deal with that quickly that division starts to run through the entire church and so you need to deal with it quickly firmly and take bold action so what are these leaders keeping watch for number one dangerous ideas dangerous doctrines false teaching which is by the way why you should always be bringing your bibles to church even if it's electronic form right uh, which is why I, I don't too often put all the scriptures on the, on the screens, although this morning I am doing that. A lot of times I don't because I actually want you to look it up in the text. Because if you're not looking in God's Word, I could be faking you out, and you have no idea, right? You need to bring the Word with you, read the Word, and make sure the things that you hear from this pulpit align with the Word. And if they don't, first, do the right thing, get clarification, make sure you're not misunderstanding, But if you find out that that's not what's happening if it's not god's word that's going out and doesn't make sense you need to get going and find a different church that's going to be teaching the word of god correctly right so elders dangerous doctrines false teaching deceitful behavior within the church divisive behavior those are all kind of negative the first and final thing that elders watch out for is the spiritual development in the church so like a good physician that that keeps their pulse on a patient and knows what's good for their health Leaders of a church need to be keeping their pulse on the congregation and know what's good for their health as well, whether it's the teaching we give to our kids, right? Or are we actually giving them the gospel, or are we just throwing Fruit Loops at them because they like that and they'll come back, right? And, and, and I'm not saying you can't eat Fruit Loops and learn the gospel, right? But, but so often, that's what we're trying to do, entertain you to get you here. And sometimes that happens in adult ministry too, <laughs> I wanna say this, I'm so grateful that at this church, we actually care about the discipleship of children. That's one of the reasons we love Susan Grover, because she knows Fruit Loops and the gospel are not mutually exclusive, right? You can actually have fun and understand the gospel. And she does a great job, and her team does a great job of doing that. One of the greatest compliments I got, our church guy, I was talking to a a younger family, and the father says to me, hey, we're gonna make this our church home. And I says, why is that? Let's say his name's Lou. I said, why is that, Lou? Because there's a lot of good churches in the area. He says, well, we've been visiting a lot of churches, and we always ask our kids, what'd you learn? One church, well, we watched a video. We played games. <laughs> they gave us Fruit Loops, and we just played on the playground. He says, when, I, when we picked up our kids from your church, I said, what did you learn? Uh, the unity and diversity in the body of Christ. <laughs> yes! Thank you, Susan, and your team, and that dad said, that's what we want, where our kids are getting equipped. So, from our kids to our adults, what are we teaching, right? Are the songs lifting you to God, making your thoughts go to Him, or are they they God-centered or man-centered? I love that Greg Craycraft, since he's been on our team, we're talking back and forth. This is a good song. How's it help us think about the gospel? Or this song, maybe we can shape it this way, and you can say this, He's picking up the the, the, the mantle from when Adam did that. To the The prayers. Are our prayers all temporal and the things of this world, or is the ring of eternity in them? When, when When we pray about our suffering, are we just asking that the suffering end, or are we praying that we suffer well? Does the gospel make an impact in our people? Is the doctrine of God's grace and His goodness and His sovereignty, are they the rebar that's building the infrastructure of this church? Those are the things that elders have to be asking. And sometimes we'll take a short-term loss, because honestly, kids like Fruit Loops more than hearing the gospel, right? We'll, we'll, we'll not do that for the long-term gain. And that's the way you should be living your life. Take the short-term loss for the long-term gain. Don't do it the other way around. And elders have to be watching out for that in their church. So the writer says, leaders, keep watch, be tireless over these things. And secondly, these leaders will give an account. Now, while there's a very real accounting that church leaders must give to the the congregation, right? That's why we're a congregational church. That accounting, that's not the accounting that's being spoken of here. The account spoken of here points to another day. It's really clear in the context. It's it's pointing to that great day uh, of accounting when every one of us, Christian or not, will stand before the Lord in judgment now if you're a christian it's not a christian it's not a judgment of your salvation that 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 if you are a believer someone has been judged in your place jesus christ that, that that's kind of the, the the backbone of the gospel and i always say we are saved by works it's just not my works that i'm saved by i'm saved by the works of jesus christ and he says these go to your account so if you're a christian salvation's not what you're judged for but paul james and jesus suggest that there is a form of judgment waiting for us all let's look at the text right don't just believe me james 3 1 not many of you should become teachers within the church he's talking about my brothers for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness first corinthians 3 each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So so James is more specifically teachers of the Word of God. This one's very clear. Paul's referring to just all of us. And then finally, Jesus' words, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. See, to be clear, the leaders of God's church will give an account for how they discharge their responsibilities just as every believer will give an account for how you stewarded the life that God gave you. So, elders, bishops, overseers, pastors, shepherds, whatever word you want to use, they are to keep watch, and they will give an account for how they discharge their responsibilities to handle dangerous doctrines and ideas, deceitful behavior, divisive behavior, and the development of the church. Now you know what it means for leadership to keep watch. Now you know what we lose sleep over, and that literally does happen sometimes in elder meetings where we're up here past midnight setting off alarms at the church. What we lose sleep over, this is it. But faithful leaders also, friends, must have faithful congregations or their labor will be, as the text said, who says, with grief rather than with joy. Now, I know if you're not a Christian or, or you have a faulty idea of what the church is, this may seem strange. It may even seem inappropriate, especially if your view of the church is more like a, it's merely just another charity with religious overtones, or it's a, it's a nonprofit business with more sentimentality touched to it. What's all this talk about? But here's the reality. The writer of Hebrews, as well as the global history of the church, understand what it is to be a church completely different just from the book of hebrews this is what a church is i can't get into all of it but let me just read the scriptures you can write them down look it up later hebrews chapters 10. Verse 22 to 25, the writer says that the church are the people called out of the world to come together to encourage each other regularly, to bear each other's burdens, to motivate one another to love and good deeds. In chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, that the church is to exhort one another to godliness and to warn each other, to prevent each other from the deceitfulness of our own sin blinding us. And the reason we can do this, Hebrews 4.16, is the church is the only people who has direct access to the throne of God, right? That's amazing. And the reason we can do this is because Hebrews 4.14 says, we have a great high priest who stands before the heavenly father on our behalf. Chapter 7, verse 25 says, that high priest is praying for you that you be the people that he wants you to be. And, and I love Hebrews 7, 27. It's one of my most, fa- my most favorite verses. That Christ ever lives to save, making intercession for his people. That's what the members of a church are. That's just from the book of Hebrews. We cannot exist for ourselves with some kind of selfish individualism, which is the, the idol of American culture and the breeding ground for division. Instead, the church, we must look for ways to encourage each other, to, to incite each other. I think the word in Hebrews 10, 24, I, I didn't look in the Greek this week on it, it wasn't Barbara text, but I, I think it's that stimulate one another, is it, like poking you, almost annoying you to do good deeds. That's what the church is about, and we need that. So the question is, how does this take place in the realm of practice? So the New Testament clearly shows that God's plan was to place the church under the care of shepherds, under shepherds, under the great chief shepherd, Peter says in 1 Peter. Shepherds lead while the membership of the church follows this God-given leadership, both in doctrine and practice. So we come to the second point of our text, really, congregations that follow. And let me just say, start by saying this, um, by admitting this whole idea of obedience and submission makes us all feel a little uncomfortable, right? I know it seems very self-serving to preach a message on church leadership and using the verbs obey and submit. I'm just teaching you what the Word of God says. It's right here. But it's uncomfortable because we've all seen authority abused, haven't we? I mean, it just feels like, I think this has been the case certainly since the 60s, so it was before when I was born, but it just seems like we are fighting every authority that we possibly can as a culture and as individuals i mean whether it's whether it's the trivial misuse of authority the, the kind of thing where you see like a, a teenage kid gets to be assistant manager at the slushy shack at the beach and now tries to order everyone around to do what he wants them to do kind of thing to the real abuse of authority whether your employer or supervisor who is who is uh, abusing their authority or a politician who lives as if the law doesn't apply to them, or a police officer who abuses the authority given to him or her, or a pastor who demands Christ's likeness but shows none of it himself, or a a husband that demands submission for his wife but does not give any love or tenderness. The list could go on and on. My point simply is we have good reason to suspect those above us. Every one of us does. But friends, those scenarios notwithstanding, we have to recognize... Authority is God's good gift to all of us in this room. And if we were to reflect a little harder and think back, we could recall instances where authority and those who yield it have, in fact, been a blessing to all of us. The police officer who discharged their their duty to serve and protect with honor. The employer who ignored the handbook, the policy, because it didn't fit your situation, the teacher who let you turn in that assignment way overdue, the father, the husband, who sacrificially loves his family and gives for their welfare. Friends, no doubt authority has been abused, but others have exercised it well. So, so we need to have a clear thinking of this, friends, And, and by this same design, God desires to protect His body, His flock, by the faithful hand of his under-shepherds, which, by the way, did you notice in Acts 20, 28, when we read it, God says, I've appointed these to shepherd my people. Yes, in a congregational setting like this, you actually, we, we, we take a nomination from you to bring up elders, and you affirm those elders. But according to Scripture, it is that means by which God is appointing those men to lead this church. You see, God always uses means, right? That's an amazing thing. As we are involved in the process, we trust that the Lord says, I'm appointing these men. So, actually, let me just do this. I'm going to embarrass them. Any elders in here in the service? Elders? Stand up. If you're an elder, stand up. One, two. Only two of the nine guys showed up. The rest of them are slackers. Okay. So, so those are two of our nine elders. God has appointed them through the means by which you all said we affirmed them as elders. So, so how does a church respond to those who have to keep watch over your souls? A church can do one of two things, friends. Obey and submit, or stiffen and rebel. There's no middle ground. You, you either can obey and submit in obedience to the word of God, or you can stiffen your hearts and rebel. There's no middle ground. Apathy, like, it's whatever, I'm gonna do whatever they want. That's just quiet rebellion, and God knows it. And I'm saying that not because I want to exercise my authority over you. Friends, authority is like soap, man. The more you use it, the less you have, right? That, that's, not, that's not the goal. I'm saying that because this is one of the problems of the human heart. We say, like, you're not the boss of me. I am king. Mm-mm. That got us in a lot of problems starting in Genesis 3. That's still our problem, right? So we can either obey and submit or stiffen and rebel there's no middle ground the writer writes these two words obey and submit they're commands actually grammatically speaking they're present imperatives in other words these are not the exception to the rule this is the standing order and it's a command from the holy spirit spiritual leaders bear the responsibility for speaking the word of god to the congregation and giving the congregation you all an example to follow we are not the exceptions to the rule we are the examples to it. Friends, here's a truth we all know deep down, okay? I'm, I'm almost wrapping this up. Here's a truth we all know deep down. Our lives are, are flourish best when they're regulated and governed and, and, and when we walk in submission to the authority that God has placed above us. Let me illustrate how I did this as a father. When my children were young, when Lori and I, our kids were young, there was one target I had as a dad, just before they were five. I mean, I didn't care about hygiene, fashion, cleanliness, uh, health, nutrition. That was all I let Lori do with all that. As a dad, I had one goal before they were five years old. My kids had to understand they were beings, individuals, under authority. When mom and dad directed them, they responded. And I'll bet you they can repeat it as a mantra. I'm not going to embarrass them because I didn't say I was going to do this. But the mantra was without challenge, without delay, without excuse, in both action and attitude. I remember doing this so often. One of my kids would write out, because I would walk through a pattern in Exodus 20, the circle of blessing. And they would write out the circle of blessing. I mean, I, I didn't care if my kids dropped food on the floor from dinner time. Because i knew they were just learning gravity i let go and wow this falls and this is fun right i didn't care if they made a mess i didn't care if they put bread in the dvd tray it makes sense i do it to the toaster why not to the kid right i didn't care if they sat on each other's heads i just cared that when dad issued a command or a directive or said something that they would respond and with obedience that flowed from that because here's the principle to the degree we understand and can appropriately submit to the authority in our lives, things will go well for you. To the degree that you cannot, things will be difficult. None of us here can escape being under authority. You cannot. And uh, you can tell, I'm, I'm actually transcending the context of church life. If you have a problem with authority, Christian or not, your life is going to be one long, hard struggle. There's no way around that. But notice why the writer says to do this. Churches should heed these instructions. Look at the end of verse 17. Because it is for their profit to do so. He says, let them, the leaders, let them do this not like oh yeah let them let them do this let them play church leader that's not the point no he's saying let them do this it's a command that recognizes the human tendency rooted in Genesis 3 to fight the authorities in their life but but it's written but it's written like a dad when he says okay family it's time to go let's go right dad's you're not making a suggestion are you you're saying move it but you're just saying it nicely the same idea. They're saying, let them do this so that you flourish. Let them do this with joy because it would be no advantage to you for them to be grieving about it. And here's the beautiful thing, friends. When there is this attitude and this partnership between the leaders of a church and the the congregation of a church, it is a display of God's glory. And, And here's why. When there is this symbiotic relationship It is a display of God's glory because here's the principle that backs that up. Whether you exercise authority or you submit to it, you learn something of the character of God himself who does both. Let me say that again because that's a critical thing. Both in the exercise and the submission to authority, you are learning something of the very character of God who does both of those things. And so, the way we interact with authority is actually a part of our discipleship and becoming more like Him. And also notice, by the way, in the two institutions, in the only two institutions that God desires, that, that, that it, it illustrates His character, the church and the family, issues of, of authority and obedience are very clear. In the two institutions that God desires would reflect his glory and character to the world, the church and the family, issues of authority and submission are really clear because it's not a bad word. It's beautiful, especially when you look in the Trinity. It's a thing of beauty. What a testimony to the world when the church and families function as God designed it, where husbands and, and leaders don't lord over their wives and members but love them and serve them And we're wives and members. Don't rebel against their leaders and their husbands, but glad-heartedly follow. You aren't going to find a community like that anywhere on this planet. So the writer says, obey and submit, for this is God's design to do you good. When he raises up overseers within his church to lead and guide you, whether you stay here or you find a different church or whatever the Lord does to you in your life, Obey their teaching because this is the Lord's Word. Submit to their direction because this is the Lord's will. Are they perfect? No, right? Will they make mistakes? Yes. But Christ says He will build His church, and it falls on all of us to do our parts faithfully. And finally, the writer ends with a request for prayer. I'll do the same. May God grant us all the grace and strength to receive and embrace His Word and plan. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, I I just recognize that that we all fight against authority. That's what it is almost to be human. From Genesis 3 all the way through, we refuse to bow the knee. And that's why I'm so encouraged. Scripture says in Philippians 2, at some point, every knee will bow and confess that Christ is Lord. That day is not now, but we see that day approaching in the church where we do bow the knees, confessing Christ is the Lord. But, Lord, help us to bow the knee to those you have placed in authority over us, Lord, so that we, can be, that we can flourish and we can prosper, whether that's in our families, our, our civic or government leaders, or our church. Help us to be a beautiful picture of, of what authority and submission actually looks like so that the church may flourish and the world may see that witness. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.